to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is the word of God. Let's pray over it. Father, we ask that you have your way. We ask that your voice would reverberate through the pews as the book is opened. We ask, Lord, that you would transform us by the power of your word. Anyone among us who is still lost and has not heard and has not called, well, Lord, I pray that you would save by the power of your word. I pray that you would use the weakness of this preacher to display your great power and the authority of your word. Father, thank you for making us Protestants. We rejoice in what happened some 500 years ago. We rejoice, Lord, that we still protest today for the good word of God that stands alone. I pray that you teach us by it, you change us by it, you'd make us a going church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Romans chapter 10, uh, verse 14. Um, You guys heard this passage? Anybody heard this passage before? Probably even heard it preached, I would imagine. Pretty well-known passage of Scripture, right? Paul is writing to the church in Rome, uh, and and I thought of of this passage. The Lord, I think, brought it to my attention as we consider us a going church. We had a baptism this morning. We had a new member, two new members join, and I I saved that specifically for this this last Sunday uh, to remember our task at hand and the great commission that God has given us to fulfill. Now, if you've ever read Romans, you know it's not all about the great commission. It's a heavy book. It's Paul's letter uh, to the Romans, but it's it's really like Paul's systematic theology. It's It's a heavy book. Book, one of the most doctrine-packed letters in all the New Testament. Paul was probably working with uh, Corinth uh, somewhere around the Acts 20 time frame when he went to a a place called Greece for three months, and the Jews ran him off from there, but that was most likely when he began to have this association with the Roman church and, uh, and, and see people get saved there and start this family. There are many goals laid out. In the book of Romans, I'll read you a few of them. Paul warns this church that all man is sinful 
and all man needs salvation. He teaches that the law is good, but only Christ can save. The law doesn't save. He teaches that the righteousness of God in Christ is what pardons sin and provides salvation. He teaches about the new age of covenant redemption that God brought when Jesus came to earth and how the old age has been fulfilled and and now we're in this new covenant. He teaches uh, about the Jews and Gentiles coming together under Christ. He talks about justification by faith alone. He talks about a sure hope that we have after death. He talks about the marks of a a true Christian after conversion and how Christians interact with each other in the body of Christ. The biggest goal of all, though, that gives ground to all these other teachings throughout the book of Romans is the centrality of the cross of Jesus Christ. All man is in dire need of atonement, and that atonement is only going to come through one source, one way, one truth, one life, Jesus Christ. Romans 6.23, you might sum it up. You know what it says, don't you? For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is his message to the beloved Romans. But if we look a little closer, maybe you want to flip to chapter 8 before we get to chapter 10. We kind of see maybe our context for our text this morning. Uh, Paul in chapter 8 is basically worshiping on paper about salvation and God's sovereign will in salvation. He, He says that those whom he predestined, This is towards the end of the chapter. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so he concludes then, if God is for us, who can be against us? We have God. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also freely give us all things? He concludes we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ in God. That ought to light our fires, as we sing, when we read it. He's having a moment. He's worshiping on paper. But then there's a sharp turn at the first of chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 1 says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Hold on, Paul. What happened to the happy stuff? Let's go back to the feel-good time. What's the sorrow, the anguish? Did he really just say that? He, He just said he'd rather be cut off from Christ completely and forever bear the wrath of God for all of eternity if it meant that his kinsmen... His brothers, the Israelites, the Jews, would know Jesus and be saved. Now, it's not that these Jews couldn't be saved, right? It's not like the word of God has failed, is what he says. In fact, many of them had been saved. But by and large, the children of the promise, the ones who were actually awaiting the coming Messiah, were deceived. They had totally missed it. And on the other hand, Gentiles... Greeks, barbarians, Scythians, all these other nations, these people who weren't Jews, like us, were being saved by the dozens. And then so Paul has to humbly admit, he quotes Exodus 33, 19 in chapter 9. He says, 
uh, what the Lord said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And so he has to come to the conclusion, even though he wants his brothers to be saved, that salvation belongs to God. We have to acknowledge that, right? Paul had to acknowledge it. But we weep with great sorrow and unceasing anguish for those who do not know Jesus. Which is why chapter 10 starts the way it does. What does chapter 10 verse 1 say? Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Family, is it your desire and prayer that God would save people? I hope so. Are you worried over the souls of your kinsmen? Are you worried for your loved ones, your friends, your coworkers, all the people God has put in your midst? I'm sure at least most of us probably think about that sometimes. We have a desire for them to be saved. And I'm so thankful that every single Sunday night, if you come to church and we have prayer requests, Marshall Melton's going to raise his hand and he's going to remind us to pray for something. What's he going to say? The lost. Every single week. We're going to pray for the lost. Steve Lett requested a couple months ago that we start praying intentionally on Sunday nights for our lost family members. By name. So we did it. I know in almost all of your families, because I have relationships with most of you at least, I'd like to be closer with some of you, but all of you, but I know who it is in your family that you're praying for, most of you. I know who the lost person is that you're worried about, that you've told me to pray for. I can probably name them in most of your family. But here's the thing. What does desire get us? What does desire get us? Has anyone achieved anything from simple desire? If I desire a six-pack, do I get a six-pack? Right? If I desire a new car, does that mean I guess get a new car? If I desire a lifetime supply of coffee, am I just going to get all the coffee I can have forever? I'm really working on that last one. <laughs> Obviously, it doesn't work like that, right? Our desires should influence our actions, and our actions should be evidence of what our desires are. Our actions are visible proofs of the things we desire and pray for, right? So God is speaking to us this morning to say that if you want to be a church that glorifies me by going to Spindale to fulfill the Great Commission in Rutherford County and to the ends of the earth, you need a desire for salvation. And, and, and this is what he says. We read in verse 17. This is what God is telling us this morning if, if this is what we want. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. So here is our action. The visible evidence of our desire for salvation must be the proclamation of the word of Christ so that people can hear it. Desire without preaching wasn't in Paul's message to the Romans. Rather, if we actually believe that Christ is the only way and that God alone can save, we must be preachers. We must all be preachers. 
And that's my first point this morning, intentional preaching, intentional preaching. Let's look at Paul's logic in our text. Verse 14, what does it say? How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So look, Paul says, here's the deal. I really want the Jews to be saved. But there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. God saves both of them the same way, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. This is what he says right before our text, verse 13. Verse 13. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You've heard that one before too, haven't you? That's a quote from Joel chapter 2. Anybody ever read Joel? (laughs) Tiny little prophet of a terrible judgment that's coming. The day of the Lord, the awesome and great day of the Lord was coming. He's prophesying about the day of the Lord where many will not survive but God's people will be blessed forever and ever and never again be put to shame. And so he says there in Joel chapter 2, in that day when the sun turns black to darkness and the, and the moon turns to blood, the people who will escape, the people who will survive, are everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. And simultaneously under that passage, Joel says the same message that Paul does, the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. The survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So we're confronted with this difficult doctrine from the get-go. Do we call or does the Lord call? Who gets saved? The answer is yes. Yes. The answer is joyfully yes. Our desire is for sinful men destined for wrath to call out to God and survive while God simultaneously draws them to himself. In a saving manner. Jesus said in John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So what this means is we need to be very intentional about our preaching, right? We need to be very intentional about our message. Some Christians, I'm afraid, are so biblically illiterate that they just gray out certain parts of the Bible and think that salvation is totally up to us. Oh, what a terror. What a responsibility. What a pressure if salvation was all up to us. We just need to decide to be Christians and then we'll be saved. Listen, all of us want people to be saved. All of us have that desire. But taking God out of salvation isn't the answer, right? That can't be it. But then there's the other side who does the exact opposite. They say, well, salvation belongs to God, so not my problem. Hope God saves them. Don't have to worry about it. I don't need to preach. I don't need to evangelize. I don't need to give my money to missionaries. Brother, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, if that's you this morning, a member in Jesus' body, this is your problem. This is your problem. Just giving up and never doing anything isn't the answer either. Paul was the reformer before Reformation was cool, and he would question your salvation. If you stop calling people to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been given a great commission. We've been called to go. So instead of polarizing different convictions about the doctrine of salvation, let's obey the word of God this morning. What does the word of God say? How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? 
You ever seen those diagrams that, you know, a lot of business folks use, you know, management, where you kind of have this end goal in mind and you sort of plan down to figure out how you're going to get to that end goal? You can use that for a personal plan. You can use that for your family. Uh, a personal mentor of mine has, has, has helped me through that. So you look at the end goal, and then you, you, instead of starting where you are now, you start there and work back and say, okay, well, if this is where I want to be, what do I have to do chronologically starting at the end? So, you know, we, we want to run a 5K. First line item is run a 5K and complete it, right? Second line item would be getting there on time. Third line item would be making sure you're well-rested, hydrated, you've got the right clothes. Fourth item would be training for the 5K. Fifth item would be registering for the 5K, right? You see where I'm going? You start from the end rather than for the, from the beginning. So Paul is starting with the end goal in mind. We want people to call. We want people to call on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. That's what Joel said. We want our kinsmen to survive the great day of the Lord. That happens when they call. That happens when God draws. That's our goal. Our desire is for sinners to openly repent and confess that they will die outside of Christ because of their rebellion and blasphemy of their holy creator. They need a mediator. They call. That's what we want to see happening. That's our desire. Well, what's step two? How do we get there? Let's go down. How will they call on him in whom they've not believed? In whom they've not believed. Now, soteriology, write that down as a big $5 word for you. That's the doctrine of salvation. Theology nerds, we'll get there in our Monday night study. We'll get there soon. The doctrine of salvation. Some think we call on him, then we believe. But what does the Bible say? We must believe before we can call. Believe is the same word for faith in the Greek, pistis. It is, it is trust. It is knowing that, that, that faith is a gift from God. Ephesians chapter 2 says, so that we might be saved. It makes good sense then that God must plant that seed of belief in the sinner's heart before it can flower into a profession of faith and a plea for salvation. Does that make sense? We want to see them calling so they must first believe. Well, how are they going to believe? What's the next step? How are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? So before they can believe, they need to hear something worth believing in. They need to hear it. Can I tell you something that changed my life recently? I heard about a brand of ice cream called Tillamook. came out of Tillamook, Oregon. I'm telling you, it is the best ice cream on the market. It's almost exclusively the only ice cream that me and Mariana will buy. I almost wish we hadn't heard of it because it's so expensive and it's the only thing we'll buy now, right? Somebody told me about Tillamook. My life has changed. <laughs> Tillamook is not getting any pay, payment for this, for this message, by the way. How can they believe, though, unless they hear this is simple logic. God put our ears right next to our brains. It's supposed to transmit knowledge into our heads to change our beliefs, right? Hearing gives way to knowledge. Now, here's step four. Well, how do people hear? How are they going to hear about Jesus? Well, how are they to hear without somebody preaching? Is Paul's logic. Now, the word for preaching is caruso. It is to publicly announce a message to someone with the intent to persuade to proclaim, to herald, 
to declare. Now, usually when we see preaching in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, we see John the Baptist coming out of the wilderness preaching to people, right? This is a public declaration uh, that, that people would listen to. Jesus came preaching the kingdom of heaven at hand, the kingdom of God. But by Paul's simple logic, we know that people don't have to come to church services to hear the preaching of the word, right? We know that preaching doesn't need pulpits. We know that preaching doesn't need stage stages. We know that preaching doesn't even need microphones. You don't even have to go out to the street corners and get a megaphone and start preaching at people. You can, but that's not the only way people hear. The goal is the announcement of a message that reaches ears. This is Paul's logic. And notice uh, that this message in, in Romans chapter 10 is not directed towards the pastors in Rome, not directed towards the missionaries, the evangelists. This is directed towards the church. Our goal must be intentional preaching. We are doing the preaching. And how will we distinguish the people and their preaching? Well, they bring a beautiful message. They bring a beautiful message. Look at verse 16. 15, I'm sorry. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. How are they to preach unless they're sent? Right? Now, I'm no genius, but I think in order for there to be something sent, there has to be a sender. When you get a letter in the mail, your eye probably goes up to the left-hand corner, doesn't it? Why? Where does this thing come from before I open it? Right? Who sent this thing? Who is our sender? Jesus says twice in the Gospel of John, one before his death and the other after his resurrection. As the Father sent me, so now I am sending you. We as disciples take after Jesus. We take after our Savior. The Father sent him to preach the kingdom of God, and now we preach the kingdom of God. Now, if the Romans didn't get this message clear enough, Paul says, let me quote some Isaiah at you. Man, Paul loves Isaiah. He must have had the whole thing memorized. Um, this is what he quotes, verse 15. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now, both Romans and Jews would have gotten this reference to some degree. In Isaiah's day, this was a reference to a messenger who came into town usually after some military conquest sent by his commanding officer to deliver the news that the war was over. And not only was the war over, but usually we won. Victory is ours. Now what was special about the sender, or the, 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 the sent one? Nothing really. He, he, he stumbles into town, in his ragged feet, but the message he has to bear is beautiful. It causes the whole town to break out in rejoicing and celebration, for good news has come into our land. Good news has come into our camp, right? Those lowly feet traveled all the way to tell them the best news possible. 
And so what Paul is communicating to the Romans is that your lowly feet take a beautiful message out to a people that need to rejoice in victory that don't know it's already been won. Christ died for the ungodly. The Messiah came. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He was God in the flesh. He bore our deserved wrath on the cross of shame. He rose from the dead, victoriously offering righteousness to everyone who would call on him. This is the best news in all the universe. And it makes our feet beautiful. Family, this news is so beautiful that it does the work all by itself. Our humble feet just show up. Our mouths just open. God's word does the work. Now, I know that there are people who, even in Jesus' day, when he would preach in John chapter 6, would, would preach to them about this bread, this life-giving uh, king and not this, just this bread-giving king, and they just looked at him and said, Nah, I'm good. They rejected him to his face. Now, why would anybody reject him with this wonderful, good news? Isn't that discouraging when that happens? But the good news, I think, for us is that if, if we simply let the message be the message, people will be won over. That's what God is telling us this morning. We don't need to make it more beautiful. It's just as gorgeous as it is. God doesn't need our message. He just wants our feet. I want lost souls to meet the people that I go to church with. Because you bear a beautiful message. Which means, because of the message you bear, your feet are also beautiful. And I'm convinced, because I love you, and I know that you're gospel bearers, I want lost people that live in our town to meet you. I have pride over you. I want people to meet you. Do you get what I'm, what I'm saying here? Make this pastor proud. Show your feet to Spindale. Let the message do the work. But don't just do it once or twice. This, this scripture is calling us to make this our lifestyle. To make this a part of our lives. We can't just do this once or twice. We must have a persistent approach. Because people do reject the message of the gospel. Look at verse 16. He quotes Isaiah again. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now Paul is a realist. He had the best news in all the world. He was an apostle, met Jesus face to face. And people did not always love what he had to say. In fact, they pretty much tried to kill him for it nine times out of ten. And ran him out of town, just like they did in Greece. He had to go to Syria, and then Syria wasn't working out, so he went to Macedonia. This was hard. The right response to the good news is rejoicing over the victory that Jesus won for us. But that, is, that doesn't always happen. We know that doesn't always happen, right? God must break the stony heart. He has to ignite a work of regeneration. The Holy Spirit convicts, makes the divine transaction, and out comes a new creation. And, and, and Paul quotes later down in, in, in verse 20, he says, Isaiah is so bold to say this. He says, this is what Isaiah says, I've been found by those who did not seek me. 
and I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. You see what he's doing? God reveals himself to who he will reveal himself to. God reveals himself to people who ain't looking for him. People come looking for him and can't find him. Which is why our faithfulness in evangelism isn't winning souls and seeing more baptism. What is our faithfulness in evangelism? Sharing the gospel. Regardless of the consequences, right? We just do it. We show up, we say it. We do the work. Our faithfulness is not based on numbers. But that doesn't change our desire. Our desire is still for people to know Jesus and be saved. He says in, in verse 16, uh, again, Isaiah, Lord, who's believed what he's heard from us? Almost a rhetorical question saying, Lord, is there anybody who's actually saved? Lord, is there anybody who's heard your word and accepted it and believed it? Lord, is there anybody who's responding to your prophet right now? Is there anybody listening? Is our work in vain? Should we just give up? Is there any hope for this sinful earth? We must be persistent. If at first you don't succeed, try, 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 try again, right? Peter preaches in Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, and people are all like, yeah, let's get saved. You know, thousands of people come, and, and, the, and the Holy Spirit and the tongues of fire, they're saved. And so we read stuff like that, and we're like, man, wh why not now? How come I labor for people that they might know the gospel? I try to show them the true and good way, and they don't want it. They won't listen to it. My own flesh and blood, my own family members who don't want Jesus. I want them to have it so desperately. Why don't they want it? We get discouraged. And so I think sometimes we come to the conclusion, whether we would admit it or not, that the method has to change. The Word of God evidently doesn't work. We need to do other things. We need to change our method. We need to be culturally relevant. We need to just love. We, we need to modify the whole part about sin and wrath. We need to show, show movies and have parties and give away free stuff. We, we need to attract people with Jesus or to Jesus with worldly means. Family, as discouraged as you might feel sometimes about people who won't listen to the gospel of Jesus Christ, I promise you, the word still works. It still works. Verse 17, what does it say? Faith comes from hearing. Hearing comes from the word of Christ. The word of Christ does the work. Unless we speak the words of Christ, simultaneously planting seeds as God gives life to whom he pleases, no one will be saved. The only thing that has changed since these days is our own attitude. God's word still works. We just give up so fast. We just give up so fast. My best friend in high school, his name is Walker. I became a Christian about 15, 16 years old. We were best buds, hanging out every day at school, after school, getting into all kinds of mischief. Um, Man, I love Walker so much. And as I got saved, I began to realize that he wasn't saved. 
So my heart began to break for my friend, but I also didn't want to ruin our friendship. It became very difficult. I didn't always know what to say to him. I wanted him to come to church with me. I wanted him to, to experience what I had experienced, this, this, this new life inside of me. I wanted him to have it. But he wouldn't take. Years went by. We graduated high school together. He goes to college. I go to college. Move four hours away. We still keep in touch. We still talk. He joins the Air Force. Does well. Moves out to Colorado with his girlfriend. And I'm thinking, man, I don't know. I don't know. He gives me a call. Out of the blue. Somebody invites his girlfriend to church. His girlfriend's getting baptized. All the guys are talking to him now. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know what to say. He's searching, he's thinking, he's doubting. He's having a crisis in his life. He's realizing his sin for the first time through the preaching of the word. Some eight years later, after I got saved. He calls me up. He says, my turn. I'm getting baptized. He calls me up and says, we're not dating, we're engaged. We're getting married. And, and so God has flipped their lives upside down through the patient proclamation of the word. Give it time. Give it time. God's word is so important. Genesis 1, God speaks, what happens? Something out of nothing. All creation. God's word did the work. We see throughout the Old Testament, God is basically just revealing himself to people, saying things so they can say what he said to other people. Go tell people what I said. Because God's word does the work. Even old Jonah, man, he didn't want any part of it. Neither did the Ninevites, but God's word did the work. Go to the New Testament. What does John 1 say about Jesus who came into the world? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. Christ is the living Word of God who came to powerfully atone for sins and make children out of heathens. Remember how Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead? What did he do? Snap his fingers? Cast a spell? Lazarus, come forth by the power of his word, right? And at the end of our story, at the end of our story, who do we see Jesus coming back as? See him riding on a white horse. His eyes are like fire. His, he's got a crown on his head full of diadems, a white robe dipped in blood. He is called exclusively one name. Revelation 19, what is his name? The word of God. That's his name. Family, do you believe that the Word of God still works? How do you think we're doing at Main Street? How are we doing? We've had a few baptisms last year. Had, we had, I think, eight members join. But remember, numbers aren't a direct picture of faithfulness. My question is, are we actively sharing the gospel with people? That's my question. That's my question. Here's where I think we are. We have a good desire and a good prayer, but I think we really struggle with the action. 
I think we really struggle to do it. We really struggle to open our mouths, to take our feet where they need to go. I think we struggle. I think a lot of us come up with great ideas, great schemes to invite people to church and to get people in here, and I think those are great. But I think the persistent life of evangelism that Paul calls us to in this chapter is what we want to see unfold at Main Street. Good, beautiful feet preaching a good, beautiful message. You know what I think about when I think about beautiful feet? I think of the feet of Christ. One day, we will see those feet like burnished bronze refined by fire in Revelation 1. But before they looked like that, they traveled far and wide. Those feet left the gaze of God to enter into earth, to come and meet and talk to lowly, wretched people like us. God in the flesh, the, the Word in the flesh, Many saw these feet, and they heard the news he brought, and many were saved. But the majority hated him, mocking him, seeking his crucifixion. And those beautiful feet that came to save us, weary by the traveling dusty roads, were then pierced with nails to a wooden tree. They went numb, bearing the weight of his entire body, as he slowly bled to death. Those feet were then taken down from the cross, wrapped in cloths, placed in Joseph's tomb, and there they laid for three days. But then those feet got up. Those feet stood again and ascended back to heaven at the right hand of the Father, standing proudly to intercede for our dirty feet today and wash us and give us a beautiful message to declare. Main Street, do you have beautiful feet? This is how you get them. You hear the gospel. You believe the gospel. You call on Jesus who is faithful and able to save. Now listen, I really struggle on how much I should expect my people to be transformed after the preaching of the word. I know that the word does the work. I never try to manipulate you. I want the word to do it all because I believe that's how it works. But I'm expecting something of you this morning. And I want to make it very clear. Here in the pulpit, I never do that, right? Come down, because I really want us to be able to hear. And I think sometimes we need to hear. And I agree with you.
you're beautiful and your face is all we seek now when your eyes are on this child your grace abounds even to me Lord we give we take great comfort in what you've done and now make us bold enough to go out into our community into our workplaces and into the people that we meet day by day let them see the hope that is within us Help us, dear Lord, to proclaim boldly, Christ is Lord and he loves you. Help us to share that message. Thank you for what we've heard today. We pray that you receive the praises, the glory, and the honor. For it's in Christ's name we come and we beg. Amen.
Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.